Amen. Good morning. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I absolutely love singing about the gospel with you. A year later, uh, I still just so enjoy um, singing with you, gathering with you each week. And I, I say that on behalf of my whole family. It's, it, we've been here for one year today, and it's such a joy to work with Pastor Dan and Pastor Joe and to serve Christ alongside all of you. And if you think I'm just saying this to you, I told some brothers the other night, I was at a men's conference down in uh, Cold Spring, Kentucky, and I told them that uh, my heart is filled with such gratitude. Uh, I count it an absolute joy to be your pastor, truly. And uh, I told them, I said, I feel like I pastor the greatest church on earth. And, and not because I think you all are perfect or that we all are perfect, but because we are, we are centered on the gospel of Christ and that just overflows week in and week out in these walls, outside of these walls. And uh, I look forward to the ministry that still lies ahead uh, for us by God's grace and only in accordance with his will. And so what a joy. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Luke 15. And tonight, or <laughs> this morning, all the way till tonight, it's going to be the longest sermon you ever heard, all right? So Luke 15, today we are going to finish uh, what we started last week on the two lost sons. And so this is two lost sons, part two. And uh, we're going to read uh, Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Jesus said, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when, he'd come to, when he came to his, himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has received him back and safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy inspired word. May you empower the preaching of the word with the Holy Spirit. And God, that you would that you would work in our hearts, that you would draw us to your son. And God, that we would rejoice in the truth that you love, pursue, save, and rejoice over sinners like us who repent and turn to Christ in faith. Do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there's nothing like a return home story. All of us have probably watched videos on social media where someone records a soldier returning home to the joyful surprise of his children and his wife. It's such an endearing scene. We've probably watched movies that are based on the same thing. We've, so we sing songs about returning home. Even the Bible actually has a couple of powerful return home stories. I think of Joseph and his reunion with his father Jacob and his brothers. Or how about Naomi and Ruth and their return home after being 10 years in Moab. Well, in this parable, the wayward, rebellious, prodigal son that we introduced last week returns home. And he returns home to the father that he despised and dishonored by demanding his inheritance so he could waste it on sinful indulgence and sinful pleasure. And as you read here just a moment ago, after he had spent all the money that came from the inheritance that his father prematurely gave to him, uh, he hit rock bottom. And you, you see that there in the verses where, in verse 14, and he spent everything, a severe famine hits, and, and uh, rather than go home at that point, he turns back and he, he, gets, he hires himself out to, to uh, citizens of that particular place that he's in, and he ends up feeding pigs and even wanting to eat the food that is given to the pigs. And so he hits rock bottom, no funds, no friends, no family, and clearly he has no future ahead of him. And it is there that verse 17 reveals that he, he came to himself, which last week we said is really the, the work of the Holy Spirit convicting him of his sin. He came to his senses, and, and as you read, he makes a plan. And his plan is, I will arise, and I will go to my Father, and I will confess to him that I have sinned against you, Father, and against God. And knowing the goodness of his Father, seeing that all of his Father's hired servants were really had it better than he did, does at this point, he believes that if he just goes back, humbly asks his Father to receive him, that he'll do so, even if it's not receiving him as a son, at least he might receive him as a servant. And so he would ask to be taken back as a hired servant, and notice how clear it is. He's not, he says that I'm not worthy. I am unworthy to be even considered a son again. And so today, as we re-enter this text, I want us to consider what happens next in this parable. Because we turn to the very heart of the story. And we, we, we have two, you know, a couple of questions. Will the father receive him? And how will his older, better brother respond to the father receiving him? But, but here's what I, I want to lay out to you real quickly. Let us keep in mind Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that we are all prodigals. That is his point. And the reason so, because if you go back to verse 1 and 2, Jesus tells this parable in a course of three parables about how God seeks, saves, pursues, and saves sinners. He's telling these parables as a rebuke of the Pharisees and scribes who were angry, look at verse 1 and 2, because he what? He receives sinners. So that he's telling this in order to rebuke the Pharisees. And so that's what we need to keep in mind, that we're all prodigals. Every one of us are guilty of dishonoring God. And it doesn't matter if you've been raised in church your whole life or that you are just visiting church for the first time. All of us, our hearts are reckless and they are ruined because of sin. 
And the good news of the gospel is this. Here's the key truth that we see in this passage. Like a patient father, God will receive repentant sinners with joy. We're going to take that a step further because I think you see even more than that. He'll even take self-righteous religious sinners. He'll even take self-righteous religious sinners. And because of that, we should rejoice. And so today, what I want to do is just want to look at two things. Last week, we looked at uh, the rebellion of the younger son. Today, I want to look at the reception from the father. And I want, to see, I want us to look at the resentment of the elder brother. So let's begin today by looking at the reception from the father. And you're going to see this key truth just right there. So what does the audience hearing Jesus tell this story? What do they expect the father to do? What do those religious leaders think the father's going to do? Well, I'll tell you what they think he's going to do. They think that the father should save his honor and shame that son. And that little impulse is in all of us. That younger son He deserves to get what's coming to him. That's exactly what those religious leaders thought. And so the truth is, is that the father here, he disappoints the religious expectations on every level. And here's how. Verse 20. He runs to him. Do you see it? And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. Doesn't say he felt the urge to shame the boy. He felt compassion. And he ran and embraced and kissed him. And Jesus is flooding this with all of these emotional verbs. Now whether or not this young man could see his father, we don't know. But when his feet hit the dirt path on that final trek towards his house, His father could see him. And I want you just to imagine, based on the text right before this, what his father saw. The young man's clothes would have been ragged and torn. His feet would have been bare. And all the signs of his ruined condition would have come into the father's view. But yet the text does not say the father was angry, ready to berate him and belittle him. No, the father only felt pity for his son. He felt compassion for his son. He was heartbroken over his son limping along in the distance. And the text is clear. Filled with love, the father ran, not away from him, but to him. To him. Yes, the son who dishonored him completely. This would have been shocking to this audience to hear this. Children run. Fathers don't. Fathers are dignified. Fathers would never pull their robe up and reveal their lower part of their leg and take off running. That would be improper to custom and to the religious attitude of the time. And yet he runs. Do you get the image? And he embraces his son in all of his filth. And he, despite all of his folly, kisses him, holds him. Now listen, if you're a parent, you've held your kids. And if you're a parent of grown children, you've held them. You've embraced them. You've wrapped your arms around them. You've felt the warmth of their cheek and the tears in your eyes and their eyes pressing upon your face. That's exactly the emotion here. There is an overflow of affection. All of this intended to stun these religious Pharisees. The young man was undeserving, and the father's behavior was so out of sorts with customs for a father. Spurgeon says that the prodigal son returned home to the father's prodigal love. Now, do you see the picture? Do you see the picture Jesus is painting here about the nature of our triune God? 
right? This, you're, you're not going to just read this in a theology book. This is the emotion of divine love. The glorious, holy, transcendent, self-existent God of the Bible is slow to anger and swift to forgive, and he runs towards repentant sinners, not away from them. In fact, he sent his only son into the world for sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Think about it. Romans 5 verse 8. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus wants to shock all of us here. Yes, God is unapproachable light. Yes, God is holy, 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 and is above and beyond all of our finite comprehension. Yes, nothing evil or sinful can be in his presence without being consumed. All of that is true, but listen to me, friends. Listen to me. If that is where your view of God stops, it is not complete. God is love, and in love he comes to us. He runs towards sinners by sending his only son, who out of great love for us came to do everything necessary for our salvation through his death on Calvary and resurrection from the dead. God the Holy Spirit runs after sinners, full of love and power, The Spirit is sent into the world to convict us of our sin, to reveal to us our need for salvation, and to bring us to faith and repentance so that he can bring us all the way home to the Father. Do you get the picture here? This is Jesus saying to these Pharisees, the Father runs towards the prostitutes who repent. And the tax collectors who repent. And to sinners like you and me who repent and come to him. And so it it, it just, when when I begin to think of this in a personal way, yes, I am sinful. Kevin Ritter is sinful. I am filthy. I am wretched. I am unworthy. I do not deserve to be sought, to be forgiven, or to be received by God. I do not deserve a place at his table. No human being does. But yet, God loves us and runs to us and throws his arms around us and embraces us in the glory of salvation. That should wreck all of us this morning. It really should. Feel the emotion that is there. But the picture's not finished. It just gets better, actually. Because not only does he run to him, look at verse 21 and 22. He reconciles with him and restores him to fellowship. So so something real happens here, beyond just the emotion of it and the affection of it. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. So notice what happens here. Remember the son, he purposed in his heart that he would go and he would confess to the father and he would ask him to receive him even as a hired servant because he's not worthy. So the son begins to make his confession and he is displaying his sorrow over his sin. But the father interrupts him. Isn't that glorious? He interrupts him. And he just immediately bestows full reconciliation. In other words, the father's not going to wait for the son to pay up his debts or to show him penance. you got to prove to me that you have changed. That's not what he does. He will receive him with zero expectations or requirements. Again, this shocks the religious leaders. 
Because in their mind, they're going to say, well, I mean, if you're going to receive him, at least you need to kind of like, you know, say, you know, you got like five years to prove that you're going to be really a different kid. That you're going to be a real, tr- truly be a honorable son. And so, and so hear me, the, the, the message here is that when prodigal sons come home, God does not need us to make promises to him that we cannot keep. The invitation of the gospel is not you come to God and say, well, if you'll save me, I'll clean up my act. I'll do better. I'll be perfect. I'll do this. You can't keep any of those promises anyway. None of us can. And, and, and so... And so the truth is, is that he receives us by grace alone. And then he transforms us from sinners to sons. He does that work. And so notice that the son planned to, he simply planned to ask the father to take him back as a hired servant. And now that might have been easier for the religious audience to receive. But the father, he wants the young man to know that not only are you reconciled, not only is, am I forgiving you, but I'm restoring you to sonship. Now, how do we see that he's restored to sonship? How do we see that? He gives him three gifts. He gives him a robe. He gives him a ring. And, and again, look, look, at the, look at the text. The father says in verse 22, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Now all three of those things demonstrate that not only is he reconciled, he is restored. A robe would be a robe of royalty. It would have been a a robe that demonstrated. It probably was a robe that belonged to the father. It was a choice robe. Some commentators say it would have been a a first rank robe. It would have been symbolic of his standing within the family as one of the sons. It displayed the dignity of the family. And so the father is giving him his son's status back. He puts a ring on his, on his hand. A ring would have bore the signet of the family. It would have represented authority. In other words, what he's doing is, is, he, is he is recognizing him in the standing place with the father. He gives him a ring of authority. And then he gives him shoes, the least of the gifts. But here's what's interesting. Slaves or servants in the house would have been barefoot. They would walk barefoot. They wouldn't have shoes. The provision of shoes, the least of all the gifts, illustrates that the father is caring for him as a son. Doesn't matter what has happened. Doesn't matter what has done. He has been received. He has been reconciled. And these gifts demonstrate that he has been restored to sonship. And the astonishing thing here is, is that the father exceeds the expectation of the repentant younger son. And it illustrates to all of us that in salvation, God receives or adopts sinners. And he makes us sons and daughters We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And because of the gospel, we are given all of the privileges and inheritance of salvation because we are now part of the royal family of the king of kings. Now now catch this. Imagine the message this is sending to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I want you to get it. Men and women who were tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners, are made the children of God. Now let's let that sink into your heart for just a moment. Remember, they were mad because he receives prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. And this this parable is being told to demonstrate that men and women... Uh, no, no matter what, that where they were in their sin, that God receives them by his grace through the work of his son into his family. He welcomes them to his table to eat and dine and fellowship because we are now his sons and daughters. God's family, listen, God's family is not made of self-made saints but of blood-bought sinners. That's what God's family is made up of. 
We are blood-bought sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. And that is how he receives us. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 1 John 3, 1. And, and I read this verse out of the King James Version. It says, Behold what manner of love that the Father hath bestowed upon us. And the reason I like that word bestowed, because, because it, it's more than just give something. It, it, actually, it actually captures what's happened here between the father and this younger son. It's to lavish upon someone. It's just to pour out love, to pour out grace upon grace and gift upon gift. Behold what manner of love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. But do you see the point? The point here is, is that not only does he, does he run to him, but he reconciles with him and he restores him fully to the status of sonship. And so we are children of God by grace through faith in Christ. And that leads us to the third observation here in the Father's reception. And that is he rejoices over him. Look at verse 23. And he says, and bring the fattened calf. He, he hasn't even let the son speak anymore. It is said enough that he has arrived home. He says, bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. In other words, get the table ready. He's sitting down with us, and we are going to celebrate. What are we going to celebrate? Look at verse 24. For this my son, he calls him my son. This my son, he was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate. And so the father orders a celebration, and notice it is the father who calls for the fattened calf. He will spare no expense. He will spare no expense, and they will have a feast like no other because it is a celebration of the son's return from rebellion, recovery from ruin, repentance of sin, and full restoration to sonship. Brother or sister, if you are in Christ and you have been saved by his grace, make no mistake, you are a child of God. It's not you might be a child of God, you hope to be a child of God. We are all the sons of daughter and daughters of God through faith in him who gave himself for us. And so what's so beautiful about this is that, again, again, keep keep. Keep the flow here, because what the father does is, it's a, it, I mean, the religious people already have said, so the father ran to him, then the father reconciles with him and doesn't demand a whole list of penance and, you know, things, and, and then he restores him to sonship, and then he takes it to another level. The father will rejoice. He will sing. He will sing. And rejoice over the return and the redemption and the salvation of his son. And what Jesus is doing ties right back to those other parables, doesn't it? What, is, what, what, what does it tell us when, uh, in regards to the, sheep, the lost sheep being found, the lost coin being recovered? The, the whole point is, is that when one sinner repents and is saved by the grace of God, all of heaven rejoices. Do you want to know why all of heaven rejoices over the salvation of sinners? Because God himself rejoices over the salvation of sinners. He has chosen to bring himself glory by purposely and, 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 and sovereignly pursuing and redeeming, loving and restoring sinners into the status of sonship. And so that leads us to this kingdom question. Do you realize that God is eager to receive sinners and can grant you sonship? Do you realize this? Do, do, do you realize that this is the picture? Because if you come in today and you say, you know, I just, I really haven't thought of this 
Even if you're a Christian, you say, I've really thought about God as the Father running towards sinners in this way. If you're bothered by that image, then Jesus just corrected you. <laughs> and if you're here today, and you want to know what God's gracious disposition towards you today, if you're not a believer, it is this. He is ready to receive you. And he will grant you salvation if you repent of your sin and come to him for mercy. And he won't even wait till you get to him because he run, he's already been running towards you through the gospel. And so that, that leads us to a second point because here's the question. That would be a good place for me to stop and give an invitation, right? No, because that's not the end of the parable. There are two lost sons. This one was found. But there's another one who probably thinks he's not lost, but he is. So the second point of the sermon is the resentment of the elder son. So notice verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Now the elder son is perceivably the good son. At least that's what the Pharisees would have thought. And he's in the field rather than out in no man's land wasting the father's inheritance. This young man, this, this older son, the elder son, he is dutifully working and, he's, and he, he's coming back to the house while all this celebration is taking place. And he's like, what's the meaning of all this dancing and singing? And when the report is given, notice what it says and pay close attention to what it says. It, it, it's a, the, the servant says, your brother has come. Your father has killed a fattened calf to celebrate because he has received him. Listen to that. That's what makes this elder son infuriated. The father received him. Draw your line in your Bible under that statement. Received him back safe and sound. Go back to verse 2 of 15. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled, this man receives sinners. It's clear what Jesus is doing. The elder brother's reaction should, what should have happened is it should have caused him to rejoice. But instead, his heart is immediately filled with self-righteous resentment. The elder, brother's re, the, el, the elder son's reaction, notice it. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And there's tone there. Look. These many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You probably should underline all those eyes. You know why? Because there's no I when it comes to our salvation. And so, but when his son, when the son of yours, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So the, the, brother re, the brother's reaction is exactly the same reaction as the Pharisees. The elder, the elder brother is every self-righteous, religious impulse in humanity. And truthfully, there's an edge of him in all of us. Because I read this and I get mad. I can't stand that Pharisee. And then I become a Pharisee. Notice four things about him. He's angry over the celebration. He refuses to participate. In his mind, we don't celebrate salvation of the wicked. You may come in here today, this is your time, you're thinking, what are you talking about? Listen, I want you to know, this isn't the gathering of the self-made righteous. We're all a bunch of sinners that have been saved by the grace of God. We're here today only because of grace and nothing else. But to him... What we should be celebrating is duty, hard work, right? Works. And by refusing to celebrate, he displays his own dishonor toward his father. His father commanded this celebration. 
Who is he to look at his father and say, well, guess what? I'm not participating in this. It actually reveals his own heart is even more wicked than his brother's was. His heart is cold. And then notice, notice the next thing. He's boastful about his servants, uh, about his performance. Listen to his boast. He says, look, I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Wow. I have never disobeyed your command. I am always dutiful to you. He is always, this is his, here's his moral record. I'm always devoted and I'm never disobedient. You want to know what brings about, you want to know where salvation begins? I am totally disobedient and I have never fully devoted myself to God. But this guy, he carries a perfect moral record as the basis for the Father's acceptance You should be celebrating me. You should be offering up the fattened calf and give me a young goat while you're at it so me and my friends can go out and celebrate my incredible moral magnificence. You know what his problem is? He's his own savior. You want to know what the problem is if you trust in your religious works and in your religious deeds and in your religious performance? You think you can be your own savior. Compare what he says to what that other son said. That other son said, I have sinned against God first and then you. And he says, and I am no longer worthy to be your son. Wow. And so, and so he sees himself as the good son. But the truth is, he's worse off than the prodigal son. It is more deceiving to be moral than immoral, to be religious than non-religious. There is a dangerous deception in religiosity and moralism. Moralism. What I mean by moralism? What I mean by moralism is the attempt to earn God's favor by your performance. And and, and as we raise kids and teenagers, I'm going to tell you what your greatest war is going to be against. It's not going to be against paganism. It's going to be the danger of moralism. Them thinking by being good and by being moral and by keeping the rules and by checking the boxes that that's somehow the basis by which God accepts and saves. It's just not. It's totally not. And so he, he's, he's boastful here. And, 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 and so the third thing you see is he's bitter towards his father. He resents his father. He says, look, 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 I've done all of this. And he resent, he's bitter towards his father because his father has never killed a young goat and celebrated his goodness. The celebration of the younger son was not about his righteousness. It was about his restoration. You follow that? The celebration of the younger son. The father was celebrating his restoring of his son. Not his son's work, but his divine work, his work. This older son wants him to celebrate his righteousness, his goodness. And as a result, fourthly, he's contentious towards his other brother. And you can't miss this, because here's what he says. This son of yours, do you know what he should have said? This brother of mine. I can't believe that you would receive my brother back. You are an amazing father. That's what he should have said. He doesn't even acknowledge him as his brother. And then notice, he goes on a step further. He points out his sin. He wants to highlight his brother's immorality so he can, he can, he can augment his, his religious and moral superiority. And his contention leads him to put the dagger through his father. And I want you to notice his words. Because you have received him. He says it. Do you see it? He says, and he said to him, your brother's come. Go to verse 30, 30, sorry. Your property 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him, and you received him. He has received him. He believes his son, his brother, should have been rejected, not received. And so with a self-righteous, critical, his just incredible judgmental spirit, he believes that his brother should have been completely disowned. Okay, so are you getting the picture here? Because this is the picture of real lostness. The most tragic lostness is in those who are religious. It doesn't matter how good you might think you are, how well you might think you perform, how dutiful you might be towards God, towards others, how much Bible you might read, or prayers you might lift, or doctrine you might know, it, it is, it, or, it, or, or how better you might think you are compared to other people. It doesn't matter if you've been raised in a Christian home, have godly parents, attend a solid church, and live to a certain standard of life. None of that will save you. Religious people think God saves and blesses them based on how much evil they avoid and how much good that they achieve. And just like I said a moment ago, religion will teach you to be your own savior, but the gospel will lead you to the only savior. You cannot use your obedience to manipulate God. And that's where a lot of people are. Well, I mean, God owes me because I'm such a great person. I'm such a good individual. No, that's not where this starts. Salvation starts with God doesn't owe me anything. And notice what the, I am unworthy. I am an unworthy sinner. And and even if outwardly I may check boxes, inwardly I wouldn't even want you to know every thought I've had in the last week. And I say that even as a believer. Our hearts are desperately wicked apart from Jesus Christ. And so so we've got to be careful that we don't try to manipulate God because that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to manipulate his father. And we can be tempted to manipulate God. And so while it is true that we must repent of our sin, hear me, we must also repent of our self-made righteousness. Have you ever repented of your goodness? Because that's what he did. I am unworthy. I am unworthy. I don't have anything that I bring to the table. I don't have any good. I don't have any morality that could save me. And and so Jesus' point is just clear. The challenge often, I I mean, again, I've I've been in church all my life. But the challenge can be, Not whether or not we believe that we're, it's not really whether or not you believe in Jesus. The real challenge is do you believe you're lost? The Pharisee doesn't believe he's lost. The moralist doesn't believe they're lost. You can't be found until you realize you're lost. And so, there again, there's no I in salvation. When it comes to our salvation, we must come to God, and it is only through Christ and Christ alone that we can be saved. Because Jesus actually would be the true elder brother. Jesus responds to sinners the way that these other brothers should have, the other brothers should have. And so notice lastly and quickly the father's response. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and alive. He was lost and is found. Now, I, I tell you to read verse 31, but I do want you to back up, and I, I, want, you to look, um, I want you to look at the verse where it says, verse, thir- verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in, and notice his father came out and entreated him. So, so see, my reaction to the Pharisee is, you, I have nothing to do with you. Jesus was willing to go to the tax collector, and he was willing to go to the prostitute. And here he is saying that the father even goes to the elder son and says, listen, it was right that we celebrated. And he entreats the son. He pleads with him. Don't you see 
What did Jesus do over Jerusalem? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft I would have gathered you like a, like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come. Jesus was in his soul heartbroken of the lostness of those that were caught up in religion. The father pleaded and entreated him. And so while I don't like the elder brother, he makes me angry. I, I, I mean, but I'm wrong. The father's response, the father responds with love and tenderness. You, you're always with me. What is mine is yours. There, but, but what's interesting is when it comes to there's no ending to this, is there? He just says it was fitting to celebrate, to be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We're not told that the elder brother comes to another feast. It's left open-ended. It's left open-ended. There's no clear ending. The father tells him how fitting it was to celebrate the return of the, of the younger son. For your brother was dead and alive. He was lost and is found. So too the elder brother is lost. He too could be found. And what the elder brother, what we want to see is that the elder brother will come along and say, now hold on a minute. Yeah, yes, father. You're, you're, you're right. And I too am lost. I too am evil. I too am sinful. My heart is filled with hatred, bitterness towards my brother. With I think I'm superior, and, I'm, and, and I recognize my self-righteousness. Forgive me, Father, but does that elder brother do that? No. It's almost like, an, it's almost like kind of an open-ended invitation to the Pharisees. There is room at the table. Will the Pharisees show up? No, because just a few chapters later, they will crucify Jesus at the cross. And he will die for sin, be buried, and be raised from the dead. Jesus does not tell what the elder brother does because that will be determined by how the uh, audience responds. And so here's the kingdom question for you today. It's this. How are you similar to the elder brother? How are you similar? Oh, God, root out those attitudes in me. Will you repent of your morality? Will you repent of your self-righteousness and be saved? Will you still stop trying to rest in your own goodness, but turn to Jesus, who came as the true elder brother to save all of us wretched sinners? Will you join the celebration of salvation? Oh, if that elder brother just could have seen the joy of salvation. And so, in closing, I want you to think about the fact that we have a father with two sons. Both are lost. One was lost and then came home. The other was lost, but never seems to acknowledge it. So as our worship team comes to prepare to lead us in a song, I, I, want, to, I, I want to draw this into a clear conclusion for you. Uh, here, here's what I want you to do. As, as they come to prepare, I want you not just to look at the pages of Scripture and just think, well, here's another powerful parable that Jesus told. But I want you to really look in your soul and ask yourself, which of these sons am I? Ask yourself that question. And, and if you're here today, you would say, well, I, I, I'm a prodigal son. Well, I, I want you to know today that if you're here today and you say, a prodigal, you say I'm a prodigal son, and, and man, I, I'm not worthy. I don't know how it is that God could ever accept me or receive me. The message of this parable is, is that none of us are worthy. None of us are worthy. We're not worthy to be saved. We're not worthy to go to heaven. But God the Father receives sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. And so here's the invitation to you. You can come to Him in all of your filth, in all of your sin. It doesn't matter what it is because you're in good company. We are all here today who are saved. We were the prodigals who God brought home and received. And maybe you're here today and you would say, well, man, I... You're like that Pharisee. You have that great book of that moral record. 
and you put all your confidence in your goodness and your righteousness, in your religious performance, listen to me, get rid of that moral record. It, it can't save you. It only condemns you. And humbly come to Jesus Christ and to the Father in heaven and admit that your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And here's the, here's the gospel. He'll save you. He'll save you now. And for, and for every single one of us today, we were all lost and found. Are you lost? Are you found? If you're lost, you can be found today. Because the Holy Spirit, through the word, has already taken this out like seed and thrown out our hearts. But if you're found today, won't you rejoice in the fact that God found you and saved you? Aren't you just, aren't you just amazed that the Father would embrace me and put his arms around me and, and receive me into his family? Can you say that about yourself? And, and then, will you come home to the Father through Jesus the Son so that we can rejoice? Because that's what this is about. We sing as Christians because we rejoice over salvation. So if you're here today and you think, man, there's no room for me at the table. Oh, no, there is. And that's the whole point of the parable. There's room for tax collectors and prostitutes and thieves and all the rebellious and all the greedy and all the murderers and all the sinners throughout the world. There's room at the table. And he invites you to come. And he will forgive you if you repent of your sin. And he will clothe you in his righteousness. And he will seat you at the table. And with all of the children of God, you will rejoice because of his salvation. That's the amazing truth of the gospel. And all of heaven rejoices. And so today, I don't know where you are, but my, my, my call to you is come to him today. I'll stand here in the front. I'm happy to talk to you and pray with you. Others here willing to speak to you about whatever spiritual need you might have. But the most important thing is your salvation. And so... Before we sing, think about this. This is what Spurgeon says. And I want you to think about this as it, right before we sing. Oh, how God loves sinners. You who repent and come to him will discover how greatly he loves you. There is no measuring the love he bears towards you. He has loved you from before the foundation of the world. And he will love you when time shall be no more. Oh, the immeasurable love of God to sinners who come and cast themselves upon his mercy. Let's stand. Let's sing. And let us cast ourselves upon his mercy.